A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. and welcome back to Forma here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. It's been a few weeks since we brought you an episode of Forma, but we are back with a batch of episodes coming up the next several weeks that we are really excited about. I'm David Kern, and I am excited to be joined this week by Alan Noble, the author of a new book called Disruptive Witness, Speaking Truth in a Distracted Age. Alan is assistant professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University, and he's the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Christ and Pop Culture. His writing has appeared in Christianity Today, First Things, The Atlantic, BuzzFeed, and Vox, and a number of other places. And uh, this is a really interesting book. I really loved it. Um, it's, a, it's about how to engage with people who are distracted. It's about how to share your faith with people who are distracted, but also how to participate in, the, in a culture that is distracted and how to perhaps avoid being distracted ourselves. However, before we get over to that interview that I conducted with, with uh, Mr. Noble, I want to say a quick word from our friends over at New College Franklin. Located in beautiful Franklin, Tennessee, New College is a four-year Christian liberal arts college dedicated to excellent academics and discipling relationships among students and faculty. They seek to enrich and disciple students intellectually, physically, emotionally, and spiritually, and to guide them to wisdom and a life of service to God, neighbors, and creation. Intellectual development occurs through conversation at New College in small classroom settings covering the greatest works of literature, philosophy, and theology, and the trivium and quadrivium. So if you are in the market, or if you have a student who is in the market for uh, an alternative to the, shall we say, big box college options that are out there, definitely check out New College. They're good friends of ours. Uh, they're, they're, uh, their president, Greg Wilbur, speaks at our conferences. Um, we, you know, we have an event coming up there actually in September that we're going to do a partnership between us and New College. And they're just doing a great work. So if you are in that market, head over to newcollegefranklin.org to learn a little bit more. Okay, so Alan Noble and his book, Disruptive Witness. This is from the back of the book. I, I, think it's, uh, I think it's worth reading here for the show this week. And it says, We are increasingly addicted to habits and devices that distract and buffer us from substantive re uh, reflection and deep engagement with the world. We live in what Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor calls a secular age, an age in which all beliefs are equally viable and real transcendence is less and less plausible. Drawing on Taylor's work, Alan Noble describes how these realities shape our thinking and affect our daily lives. Too often, Christians have acquiesced to these trends, and the result has been a church that struggles to disrupt the ingrained patterns of people's lives. But the gospel of Jesus is inherently disruptive. Like a plow, it breaks up the hardened surface to expose the fertile earth below. In this book, Noble lays out individual, ecclesial, and cultural practices that disrupt our culture our society's deep-rooted assumptions and point beyond them to the transcendent grace and beauty of Jesus. Like I said, this is a book that uh, I really enjoyed reading. Um, it's challenging and encouraging at once. I think great books on culture tend to be that way. They tend to sort of push the right buttons and um, to be incisive without being threatening, I think is a good way of putting it. And I think that this book accomplishes both those two, both those two things. Um, 
And I think that it offers and contributes to an important conversation, especially for those of us who are teaching and who are looking to cultivate um, an environment. That's a word that comes up a lot in this interview, um, an environment um, of reflection, of contemplation um, that, that avoids being distracted because we can't, uh, we can't cultivate students who are good at contemplation if we're allowing them to be constantly distracted by the environment they're in or by things that are going to overwhelm the environment that they're in. So uh, we talk about that. We talk a little bit about the idea of vocation um, and we talk a little bit about uh, Alan's history and homeschooling um, as well as some of his goals for the book and, and, and lots of other stuff. It's a pretty wide, far-ranging conversation, so to speak. So I'll just I'll get you over there right now. Without further ado, this is my conversation with Alan Noble about his book, Disruptive Witness, Speaking Truth in a Distracted Age. Well, first of all, Thank you for joining me uh, on the podcast. It's uh, great to have you here and excited to share your book with people. I've been reading it and have really enjoyed it. And I hope lots of people buy it because it's a, it's a message I think that a lot of people need to hear. So uh, thanks for joining it. And how, how, are the, how are things going with the book promotion? Are you, are you worn out on the book promotion tour? I am a little worn out. I'm a little... Uh, um, I'm not used to talking about my stuff, my projects, you know, this much. You must so just laid away in, in uh, like in a dark corner somewhere. I, you know, I prefer to, yeah. So right now I'm trying to work on my second book proposal okay. and um, that's, that's what I want to be doing. Right. Yeah, yeah. But um, <laughs> because it's, you know, I, I'm definitely at the saturation point where I feel especially I, I'm under obligation. I mean, I feel obligated to promote the book yeah, and share yeah. links and these sorts of things, which is yeah. good. But at the same time, I'm like, gosh, everybody's got to be sick of hearing about this already. But um, you gotta be that's the job. Media. Yeah, you got to be on social media posting links and writing little quippy things and all that kind of stuff yeah. to promote the book. Yeah. Even though it's a book about being distracted by those sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, some, some, somewhat ironically. Yes. <laughs> well, um, so I'm curious about what kind of led to y your, shall we say, need to write this book? I assume mm -hmm. it was something that you felt was sort of deep inside of you. And to get to that, I want to learn a little bit more about you, I suppose. So where did you, where did you grow up? What was your, what was your formative years like and your education and all that sort of thing. Yeah, I can actually uh, tie those two things together, I think, kind of nicely because it, the roots of this go back to my uh, my teenage years back in Southern California where I lived in the Antelope Valley and uh, I was homeschooled uh, my whole life. I, I like to say I'm a hundred percenter because I was homeschooled <laughs> with no, no, not even some of my, one of my friends had went to kindergarten and I'm like, that's not, I'm sorry, but you know, that doesn't count. You're not legitimate. That doesn't, yeah, you're not. Yeah. And we had goats. So like, I feel like nice. it's an extra badge. And so you were like extra uh, we, unsocialized. <laughs> I was in 4-H. I'm not going to answer that. I was in 4-H. So uh, in Southern California, which is kind of special. So we had a, uh, uh, in our homeschool co-op, there was a, a class led by one of the parents, two of the parents, two, two moms led a class on Francis Schaeffer's How Should We Then Live? Yeah, yeah. And that book blew my mind mm. because I had grown up in some denominations, some churches, some environments that had a very low under low view of culture yeah. and cultural yeah. works. And so I, I think I primarily thought in terms of the world and culture out there being this dangerous, negative, bad thing, and we need to separate ourselves from it. So, mm. I mean, I was a part of the, you know, Cabbage Patch, uh, Cabbage Patch dolls are demonic scares of the early or late 80s, I guess. Um, I uh, couldn't watch Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles because somebody levitated on in, in an episode. And so, so these sorts of things. And yeah. so here comes Schaefer and he's like, I'm watching these films and I'm, uh, and I'm looking at art and I'm listening to the Beatles and I'm commenting, commenting on these novels and there's yeah. some value to this. And yeah. I'm like, wow. And the fact that he was um, 
a thoughtful Christian and that, you know, he was intelligent and that he was engaging these things Mm. and that he was not, um, demonizing or demeaning, um, non-Christians. Um, you know, there, I had, I had a tendency to, to, in a sort of fundamentalist upbringing, not by my parents, but by the culture to, to, to see things of the world as, you know, foolish. And so Schaefer has respect because of his view of common grace. He has respect for the good things that are created by people. So that was really formative for me. And how old were you when you read that? You said like high school, ah, 14 or 15. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you were at that age where you're really starting to, you know, you're, 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 you're starting to sort of try to carve out your own freedoms anyway. And so you, right. That, that seems like it. I didn't read that book till I was much older. But I, in some ways, I think I was embedded in cultures that were similar to that. Like, yeah. you know, not necessarily, like you said, not by my parents per se, but just by the right. sort of Christian culture at large that I was a part of, looked at things similarly. So I can imagine how that book would have similarly maybe blown my mind. I think was the... Yeah, the yes, I can, that's right. I think I can, I think I can uh, sort of get get how meaningful that could have been for you that that inspired me to at, at, at a certain point as i you know finished high school a little early i got a proficiency exam I, I took that in 1997 and then went to community college and then got a bachelor's and a master's in english in southern california at cal state bakersfield and at that point, that, I mean, really still influenced by Schaefer, I decided that sort of what I felt my calling was, was to, to help the church um, participate in culture more faithfully. And I wasn't sure exactly what that would look like, but yeah. that, was, that was what I was passionate about. So whether I was making music or, you know, teaching or whatever, yeah. I knew I wanted to do something. Hmm. So, but how did you said you that you said it was like a vocational thing like you felt like that was your calling how did that become clear to you i, I think I, mean, I don't know if it, maybe it was more intuitive yeah <laughs> yeah i mean i think i just think over time um you know i at, at one point i don't remember i don't know where he says this but i heard tim keller talk about um talk about vocation and he talked about it considering i think four things and even though i hadn't heard i didn't know tim keller was at, at, at the time i think that's kind of what i was doing mm. and that was you know you think about your gifts what you're good at and mm. i i had studied english i knew i was good at interpreting literature and writing about literature and mm. i also played in a, in a band for a while so i was good you know at interpreting music and so i cared about those sorts of things and then I thought about, um, the other thing he says is a need. Where is there a, a, a need? Not just like a financial need, but what does your community need? And when I look out in the evangelical community, I felt like, uh, particularly at, you know, in the early 2000s, but still today, that there was a need for, for a, a more biblical and discerning way of participating in culture. Um, and then, you know, the other thing is, you know, can you get a job in it? That was, that was the weak point, but I got a job. So it turned out. Okay. So, so you, you didn't necessarily, you said you hadn't heard of Tim Keller yet, but in retrospect, he's probably naming what you were. What you were yeah. Yeah. He, yeah. He described in retrospect. Uh, I think that was the process as I was, as, as, as I was getting my master's degree and, um, continuing to study on my own. Those were the things I was passionate about. And those were also things that I felt my community needed help in. Mm. And so that, to me, that was enough to say, okay, well, this is what I, this is what I need to be doing. The only question is what exactly is it going to look like? So is this, uh, you know, you can answer this tactfully if you must, but is this, <laughs> is the way you're kind of describing and understand or is that sort of participation in culture or perhaps a lack thereof something that you see as a common flaw in the homeschooling, the Christian homeschooling community at large, or, mm. um, or would you not, maybe not put it that way. A lot of homeschoolers yeah, I, listening. So, but don't, yeah. you can hurt people's feelings. <laughs> I, um, 
I have not been a part of that, you know, community for like 50, you know, 20 years. I mean, so I finished in uh, 21 years ago. So okay. a lot has changed. Yeah. I think a lot has changed. It, it's really hard for me to say. I know that, um, in my experience in the nineties, late eighties, early nine, early to mid nineties, I would say that the, the, the failings of the homeschool community to faithfully participate in culture um, simply mirrored the broader evangelical slash fundamentalist uh, failures that I was, you know, a part of at that time in various churches. Mm. And that's probably still the case. So it seems to me that in a lot of ways, your book is about, so, 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 you you were inspired to find ways to participate properly in culture, and that's something that. So, is that would you say that's part of your calling? Is like figuring out how should how uh, how what does it look like for Christians to participate in that culture in a way that is both um, faithful to the culture and faithful to well your faith? Is that would you say that's true? Yeah, yeah, and so I've done that primarily two major ways. So one is my. Um, my career. So I, uh, teach literature and I'm teaching students how to read carefully, how to interpret. And that's one way I'm doing it at a Christian school at Oklahoma Baptist university. And the other thing that I'm doing is online writing and editing. So I helped found Christ in pop culture, which is mm-hmm. a, a website that essentially I would hope tries to model that faithful participation. Yeah. Um, so that's that's how that happened. Now, if you want to know how it got from I got from there to the book, the answer is Schaefer, <laughs> because uh, a few years ago uh, I was wondering, asking myself the question, um, how has the challenge of evangelism changed since Schaefer's time? Yeah. Uh, um, Francis Schaefer's approach, you know, as, as I read a lot of his works and listened to. His life story. Here's a man who would have people come and seek him out and ask big questions about life, and they would have these sincere conversations. And um, it struck me that that model of uh, evangelism didn't quite um, seem as, as 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 effective or impactful in 2018 as it did in say 1970. Yeah. And that was my sort of gut reaction. And so then I explored why and uh, sort of the two major answers I came up with are technology of distraction and, and the growth of secularism. So then, so, so you, the growth of secularism is an interesting point. So would you say that you're saying that the growth of secularism is, is something that Schaefer, Schaefer was not having to contend with or, or is it a matter of degree? Yeah. Yeah, it's a matter of degree. It's definitely okay. a matter of degree. And and he absolutely was, uh, yeah, he was definitely contending with it. But um, it, it, I think it does look different today. So, so in the book, you you talk about Charles Taylor a lot, who yes. seems to be having a moment. Um, there's been, you know, several books on, on, his, on his work recently, and several of them are really, really good. Um, yeah. Do do you think that he the way he defines the way well you talk about how he defines secularism in your book but do you think that Schaefer understood secularism in the same way that Taylor did? No, I mean I don't think many of us. I I don't think most people did. Uh, so Taylor's A Secular Age came out in uh, 2007, and it's mm-hmm. 800 plus pages, <laughs> and so you and just it's. It? <laughs> yeah. I've actually, I think I've, re- I've, I think I've read it multiple times, which is insane. Yeah. Uh, or at least you? parts of it. I don't know. Yeah. At a certain um, point, it's just evidence of a problem. I think. Or maybe I was, you you're know, just not distracted. I was, well, well, I think I was just, when it's that big, like, and you're <laughs> writing a book, I was like, I was afraid I was going to misrepresent them. Cause it's yeah, like, there's yeah. so many pages. I'm like, man, I got to make sure I've got this down. Cause there's a yeah. lot. So you're so, like, I'm going to write a 180 page book on this book. And then you realize, shoot, I chose to write, to write a 180 page book on an 800 page book that I now have to read three times. So I don't. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> I, yeah, so a, I, I don't think a strategic mistake. Probably in retrospect, <laughs> that's all right. Too late now. Yeah. Um, yeah, in retrospect, I mean, in the 19, uh, well, in the 1960s, maybe early seventies, there was still the, 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 uh, secularization hypothesis, you know, the idea that by the nineties or certainly by the two thousands, um, religiosity would be for the most part, Western countries, industrial countries would be sort of a thing of the past. And that turned out to, to not be the case, um, particularly in America. So that would have been probably the, the understanding of secularism that Schaefer, I'm just speculating here, but that's probably the understanding of secularism that he would have been familiar with the one that sociologists would have been talking about at the time. Say more. So you say that more about that. So you you would they he would have thought. Can you just restate that again? Sure. Yeah. So in, I'm, I'm, in I'm, the thinking, six, I'm thinking now. So I need you to talk while mm-hmm. I think. <laughs> Understandable. <laughs> so in the sixties and seventies, most sociologists, um, Peter like uh, people like Peter Berger, uh, famous okay. sociologist okay. who recently passed away, yeah. uh, and a believer. He uh, they believed that there was a. Tra- trajectory in particularly Western industrialized countries towards um, atheism, non-belief, that um, with the growth of technology and economies, there was less and less of a felt need for a a religious faith. Mm -hmm. And so people would just drift away. And, um, you know, there were speculations that, you know, by the 90s or the early 2000s or so, really, for the, for the most part, America, a country like America would be atheist, um, that, that, that people of faith would be in the, severely in the margins. And that turned out to be glaringly wrong. Um, so as opposed respect. to Taylor's idea that faith in God is just like one of many options. Right. Yes. Yes, which you exactly. talk about in what is that chapter two in the book? You 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 get into kind of defining some of Taylor's ideas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he he talks about secularism not so much as atheism, and his specifically his argument is that that the older understanding of secularism was what he called a the subtraction myth. And he had, the idea is that um, sociologists thought that humans at their core. Uh, weren't religious and then older humans added this all the superstition on top of things and as we are progressing and becoming more and more enlightened we subtract all this baggage of our past including religion and charles taylor says that's nonsense the subtraction myth is 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 not true so really at our core um we're were religious in, in, in some sense of desiring a fullness. Yeah. And, um, so, so his version of it is, is very, very different. Well, okay. I want to come back to this, but I want to shift gears to about sort of to uh, the evolution of your ideas on this book, because you begin the book before you get to the Taylor stuff, you begin talking about the age of distraction that we live in. Um, and you talked about how, as you were thinking about, the the challenges of contemporary evangelism mm-hmm. um that the, the sort of distractedness of our age is or at least of the people who participate in the age is is a challenge because how do you get people's attention um how did that become something that that became and i and i realize i'm oversimplifying it in the way i just said it um but how did that become something that like, how did you settle on that as an idea? Like, how did that become something that you you became aware of so intimately and profoundly that you felt like it was time to write a book on it? Did you? Were you? Was it because you were feeling were you, that you were feeling that in your own life and you were noticing it, or did you? Was there actual instances of you were trying to share the gospel and like you couldn't you couldn't reach people because of that? Yeah, I don't. I don't know that it were. It, it was inspired by any particular experiences with um, with bearing uh, bearing witness to my faith. But I but I would say that at the time, what what really the, the seed of this was uh, a blog post for Christ in pop culture 
And uh, in that post, I was thinking back to Schaefer's tendency and, and really the very popular tendency to think in terms of worldviews yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and worldview apologetics and, and mm. how, um, how neatly and, and tightly and uh, sort of propositionally it, worldview thinking tends to be. And yeah. then I was reflecting on, you know, my students and people I know and even my own life and, it, it felt to me, um, it struck me, it struck me. I could, I can imagine this situation, which I talk about in the book where you sit down to talk to someone about your faith and, you know, you explain your essentially Christian worldview and maybe you tease out some of their, what you want to call worldview. But the problem mm-hmm. is that it is so easy to tune out and to be numb to things, uh, to, um, anxiety, to hard questions in 2018. Yeah. To like dissonance. Dissonance. Yeah. I just don't think that cognitive dissonance is, is nearly as hard to deal with. Because you can just ignore it. You can't. Whereas when Schaefer was talking with people who were coming to him who were atheists or Buddhists or whatever, and he was challenging the worldviews, I just, I I think they had more contemplative space because it was harder to fill every second of their day with, you know, high quality, high definition, high speed internet, you know, videos, podcasts, music, television, games, Twitter, whatever, Twitter. Yeah. Social media. I mean, iPhone games. Exactly. I mean, apps that are designed, you know, that have colors and sounds that are designed to be addictive, to keep your, to draw your attention away from whatever it is that you're doing. Well, in that kind of environment, if you want to not feel anxious about something, it's not that hard. And I know this because I feel this myself. Like when, sometimes when I have anxiety, I'm like, it is actually easier for me to open my phone than it is to pray about it. Now, sometimes that anxiety is is irrational, and I really don't yeah. need to sit around thinking about it because, it, <laughs> yeah. it, you know, the, the mind has fallen too, and um, yeah. the body. And but but there's a different kind of you know anxiety that cognitive dissonance when we're living a life that is incoherent, that is that is at odds with what we claim to believe. That we yeah. got to deal with that cognitive dissonance, and I just think in 2018, it's just so easy not to. So when I yeah, imagine yeah. people having those serious worldview conversations, I just thought, you know what? That person can just walk away and open his phone and none of it matters. I noted this in a Twitter thread. I think I tagged you in it when I was reading a couple of days ago, but it, I was really thinking about this from the perspective of teaching and, you know, our mm-hmm. listeners are teaching in some form, way, shape or form or another. They might be leading a school or teaching a fourth grader or whatever at home. But like one of the, one of the vocations of a teacher is like to help students have tools to identify and resolve those dissonances within them. And especially as they get older, you know, those dissonances become more profoundly felt. And so we try to provide like true, good and beautiful things that bear witness to, you know, even just order, for example. And then you know, in experiencing those and participating in conversations about them and things like that, they, those, those dissonances can, can be brought front and center and you deal with them in a way like that's part of the project of education. And I'm again, oversimplifying, but one of the things that we're up against, and I'm sure you see this with your students all the time, just like with college students, just like a lot of people do with even like 10 year olds now, right. Is that, you know, if, if it, so what does it mean for us as educators and parents if our students have been um, conditioned to ignore yeah. the dissonances within them, like what does that right. mean about what our current challenge is as educators, and how do you approach that challenge? Yeah, that's an excellent question because I think what will happen is that the students, and then then likely the teachers, are going to think about their tasks, their assignments um, as instruments. Right. And so, you know, when you're studying Plato or, or Socrates or something, you're not studying it because there's some wisdom to be had there, which you can get at by wrestling with it. 
Instead, you're, you're doing it because you need to, let's say, pass a class. That This is a thing that we do in this kind of this style of education. So we've got to get it done. Right. And I, I've, right. I've seen that with homeschoolers and, you know, in my own upbringing. And I see that in college students as well. This, this tendency to think about things in purely utilitarian or, or instrumentalizing terms. Right. And I think technology really helps us do that because in order to not think about education as, an, as just purely this tool, you have to let it, you have to risk something. You have to risk changing your life. Um, having it affect you, having it change your imagination, change your desires, change your heart, change your understanding of history and people and, and so, and God. Um, and that requires space for reflection. So a lot of what I talk about in the book and, you know, I, I, I say that the gospel is cognitively taxing. Um, and I think a lot of that could be, a lot of that overlaps with, with education as well. I mean, it's not just our faith that's cognitively taxing. Most of the really wonderful things in life require some contemplation, some mental space. And if we are training our minds to constantly be clicking on something or listening to something, then we're missing. We're missing out. Um, So that is a unique challenge, I think, for our time. Yeah, and I think you talk about how we kind of unreflexively, is that the word you use? Unreflexively sort of respond to the stimuli of the media, the things that we're distracted by, which makes it easy to just sort of adopt. Well, you talk about causes, for example. It's like easy for us to just adopt a cause because it reveals to the world something about us that we want to be known for or whatever, but we do it unreflexively. Like we, there, we don't, we don't, we can, we can start doing something without having to spend any time deciding whether or not we want to do it or we, whether we should do it. Right. Um, but we wouldn't even have to, we don't have to spend money. We, do, we can spend money before we even have to think about it. Right. Um, which I think is like, um, you know, if there's a metaphor for the way we do things, the way our brains work in this age, it might be that, um, well, that might be, I don't, well, a metaphor, one of them. Right. So do you, do you find then that with your students that, you teach all you teach college students, right? You know, high school students. Yes. Okay. Correct. So, I you, mean, except, I mean, some, some are seniors in okay. high school. So, so old, they're older though. And so they're at that yeah. point in their lives where they're beginning to hopefully consider like their own vac- vocation. Um, I almost said vacation and I'll probably, probably <laughs> mostly <laughs> that. Yeah, it's actually more, much more accurate. I think. Um, but, but do you think, so do you think that that applies to thinking about vocation too? That was a question I had when I was reading, because if we can unreflexively sort of just adopt causes, do you think that we spend less time also reflecting on vocation? And so we just sort of take up things that we're going to do sort of unreflexively as well. Absolutely. Like, do you see that in your students? Absolutely. I, I see this with the, the um, choice to go to college. So, I mean, I'm a big oh, advocate yeah, yeah. For, for, for going to, to universities. I don't think everybody needs to go to a university, but I think that especially a good Christian liberal arts university has a lot, can do a lot of formation, spiritual, holistic formation that is really good for, for, for our students. However, um, I think that for the, most of our students, and I, I would say this is true at every school, most students, um, I talk to my freshmen about getting swept up in a stream. I say that, you know, when they're a senior, uh, they took an SAT or an uh, ACT test, and they didn't really probably think too much about whether or not they wanted to go to college, really. And then it was application time and then it was college visiting time and then it was enrollment time and then it was showing up and moving in. And then, you know, one day they just wake up and it feels like a blur and now they're sitting in freshman comp 101 or whatever. Right. And they haven't really spent time thinking, what is the purpose of, of university and what is the purpose of, of, yeah, vocation? What is the purpose of really my life? And I think things are so programmatized there that we have such a life really does feel like a flow. 
Um, yeah. There's so much going on. I, I feel like for most modern people, we can just get out of bed and there's stuff that we need to be doing. And there's like a yeah. routine yeah. and there's like a trajectory for your life and you just get on it. And then, the, you know, the scary thing is that one day you wake up and, and you ask yourself, like, why am I, why am I doing any of this? What is the point? It seems like it's the one of the sort of tragic uh, results of valuing, I don't know, individual choice or having yeah. an unlimited number of choices. Like our culture, what is our culture value more than the ability to decide whatever you want, right? And exactly. so if you're going to be able to decide whatever you want, there has to be an unlimited number of choices for everything, mm-hmm. you know, from what you're going to do with your life to, to, you know, whatever else is the flavor of the moment that we're all debating in culture right now. Um, do you think that, do you think then that it, do you think that, well, I'm trying to think how to phrase this. Do you think that teachers and parents should, should be presenting to our children, the idea that this whole unlimited choices thing is bogus and we should actually be saying you don't have unlimited choices. And like, <laughs> if so, like if so, I mean, you don't want to discourage your children from following their dreams, I suppose. Right. Um, um sometimes. Well, yeah. well, right. So I'm, I'm in, th- uh, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's a hard, I mean, it's a really unpopular thing. I don't want to tell my kids to, to follow their dreams without exception, you know, without qualification. Right. Right. Like, I mean, I only want them to follow their dreams if their dreams are rightly ordered and glorifying to God and, and loving to their neighbor. And, um, do you you find that that, that that idea is sort of never been put in front of the students that you teach? Yeah. I don't think, um, I, I don't think most, most college students have have heard that. I don't think most college students, uh, Christian or otherwise, at all think about the idea that their vocation should at least in part be determined, for example, by the needs of their community. So it, it almost always is yeah. thought of in terms of what is going to be personally fulfilling and interesting to me uh, and, or what is going to make me money. Yeah. Um, and that's incomplete. Well, and that's where the term vocation comes in, right? Right. Like one of the things we talk about around here is our business sort of statement, like in our business, we don't, we're sort of, we're not allowed to talk about like vision and mission Hmm. because vision and mission have this sort of con, like the context is, this is my vision. This is my mission. This is what I'm here to this is what I'm choosing to do. Whereas vocation is, this is what I'm called to do. This is how I, this is the kind this yeah. is what I'm called to do to participate in this community. Yeah. Um, so are there, if we're talking, if we're thinking in terms of vocation um, and participation yeah. in a community, um, how, how do you, this is, I guess, perhaps not directly related to your book, huh? Um, That's fine. How do you, how do you think that you, that parents and teachers should te- te- well help students um, pursue a vocation or or hear a vocation like or hear what their vocation is like how how do you um, it seems like when you're talking about your own vocation in some ways it's hard enough right um, mm-hmm. to, to try to hear that. Um, to, and to and then to follow it and try to figure out what's actual vocation and what's not and what am I actually called to do and what do I think maybe I'm called to do and what do I want to do and how does that jive with what I'm called to do and all those sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, but so how do you cultivate, well, let me put it this way. I suppose, how do you cultivate an environment in a school or a home or even in yeah. the mind of a child where, where being alert to a vocation is possible? So I think, um, to, to answer that, I, uh, part of my understanding of vocation I don't think of vocation as um, necessarily as an as an absolute. So, uh, and, and maybe I should, but so for example, in my in my experience, it wasn't like there was a you know um, like God spoke to me or something. Right. But or like there's one um, specific woman in the world that's just for you, like you're right. Like, exactly, it's not that concept. That's not like exactly. A 
Exact, exactly, the exact same. So, so sometimes my students they do want to think in terms of calling, but mm-hmm. I think sometimes they're like waiting for this like divine message to drop from the sky. Yeah, they and, want to be woken up in the night by a voice. And what I encourage them to do is to think in terms of of uh, uh, to be reflective about several things. One is their abilities. They need to be able to take honest inventory. What am I actually good at? Mm. What can I be? And this is, again, what I'm getting from Tim Keller. What am I actually good at? Where, where are my skills located? And then two, what do I enjoy doing? That's one piece, but it's only one piece. And then uh, where can... And then what do my, what does my community need? And that's the one that is rarely almost never considered. I think for, for most modern people in general, we don't ask except for Christians in terms of ministry, like in, Mm -hmm. in terms of ministry, uh, you know, the students I work with are very good about thinking, you know, I, I, I really have a heart for people who are being sexually trafficked or for this people group that I want to go and be a missionary to. But Mm -hmm. when it comes to like outside of ministry, it's very hard for us to think in terms of, well, you know what? My community needs uh, a reduction in crime. Like there's, or, you know, we need a better city planning, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's kind of crazy, but those are real felt needs. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth thing is what can you actually get a, a, a job in, right? Because if, if there's a need, but there's no one to pay, uh, then you need to be strategic about it. And so, when you think about it from those four, I, I think creating an environment where you're um, talking about the needs in your community regularly as obligations that your household or your school needs to be aware of, that helps create the environment where, where vocation is not just about what you enjoy doing. Um, and, then, and then also being realistic about what the market will support, right? Yeah. Um, are, are there actual jobs in there? So, um, yeah. Do you think that, well, so this is related to the, your book, especially the first chapter about distraction. Do you think that then we live in a culture that like the environment that, that the technology that we're, that we've made so much a part of our lives is sort of inherently distracting from being aware of calling? Like, because you're just because you're so distracted that you're not listening for it. Yeah, and and here's why: because I think um, the overwhelming information that we have and our easy access uh, access to it in, inclines us to focus on one of those four pillars, and that's the pillar of of, of interest. So right. if I find myself really interested in some obscure thing. Um, you know, I really like the films of uh, Akira Kurosawa, the great Japanese film director. So maybe, yeah. I, you know, I could imagine myself as a teenager getting completely engrossed in his films and thinking, I, I need to be a, a, a film professor who only teaches this, right? And this is going to be... The world's and, foremost scholar of Kurosawa. And the thing is, the internet allows me to, to be surrounded by a community of people who think exactly like that. Where this wasn't this wasn't true when I was growing up, right? So, like in the early '90s, you know, if I was into something really niche, there wasn't. I mean, if I if one of my neighbors or buddies wasn't into it, there was no. I had no community. I couldn't. And so it's it, yeah. so so today, yeah. what can happen is a student can be really into one really niche thing, and feel and and get ton, watch hundreds of hours of YouTube videos, read tons of articles about it. Um, get completely engrossed in it and feel like, man, that's the thing that's going to make me fulfilled, right? And that's one of the other things that I I think families and schools have to do is that they have to teach students that um, your job is not the thing that justifies you. Christ justifies you. And if you go about looking for a career, believing that that is the thing that will justify your existence on earth, then you will always be disappointed. Hmm. So I assume this is the number one question you get. Well, I don't even need you to answer it really. People should read the book. But is the number one question that you get 
Is this a book that is anti-technology? Is that like the number one question that people have been asking? Me? Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, it comes up fairly often. I, I think I could be more anti-technology. Uh, <laughs> I am, I am open, you know, so Andy Crouch is, you know, more anti-technology. He has a great book, um, uh, the tech wise family. And, yeah, yeah. um, there's some families need to think seriously about the effects of technology, especially on their kids, especially their teens. Um, there's some, uh, there's some serious concerns. I was able to kind of skirt the issue a bit because my focus is not primarily on how it's affecting us, like the individual reader, mm -hmm. but how it affects the reader's conversation with other people. And mm -hmm. unless we're ready to like ban cell phones, then <laughs> the conversation is sort of moot, right? So like, right. yeah, yeah, okay. You should really restrict your technology use, but your neighbor's probably not going to. So how do you talk to him about the gospel? And that's, that's still the challenge. Yeah. You know, I love television and movies and I'm not as into technology as some people, but like I wasn't the first person in line for the iPhone, but you know, I love my smartphone, <laughs> but I was thinking, yeah. I was listening to a podcast and Chuck Klosterman um, was the guest. Yeah. Um, you're a basketball fan. Do you ever listen to the Bill Simmons podcast? <laughs> I, I do not. I have, okay. I mean, I used to listen to it, but yeah, I don't like it. No. Okay. So he, he was talking to Chuck Klosterman, Bill Simmons was. And so they're talking about um, technology for some reason or TV. And Chuck Klosterman was like, you know, like in the seventies, everyone was worried about what tech, what TV was going to do to everybody. And it turns out they were right. <laughs> Everything they wanted yes. about technology and TV in particular came true. So what do we do about it? So, so I was thinking about that and um, it makes me wonder like, you know, like we think about our kids. Uh, I was also listening to an interview with Dax Shepard, the actor. And he was like, when I, before I had kids or when my kids were really young, I had all these ideas about, you know, all these rules I was going to keep for my kids. Um, they were not going to, they were only going to watch so much screen time and all that kind of stuff. And he's like, and you know, I still have those rules, but I just break them all the time. Yeah. And um, so do you, do what you have, how many kids do you have? Three. Okay. So um, how, and how old are they? Two, six and eight. Okay. So I've, I've got a two, five and six actually. Um, but do, do you find that you, as you kind of been writing and thinking about these things that you've been more concerned about the amount of time your kids at that age spend in technology, watching Netflix shows or whatever, or has it, was the, do not really an issue for you anyway? <laughs> yeah, I, we were, uh, um, we were concerned right from the start, we were like Dax, you know, we were like, yeah. as soon as our, as soon as we had our firstborn, we were, um, we tried to do, I think like no screen time until she was two. That didn't work. We got, I mean, she would watch something before she was two, but, yeah. um, we generally, generally try to keep it to like a half an hour a day, of either certain kinds of TV shows or video games. And, and I think a lot, um, I'm very concerned with like the the quality of the TV shows. I mean, there's a lot of garbage out there yeah. and uh, a lot of frenetic garbage that I think is really bad for their attention spans. And so I prefer shows that have some sort of plot line and are imaginative. And Yeah. Well, so that's what, that's why the reason I asked that is because, <clears throat> you know, the idea of like cultivating an environment that is more contemplative because our kids are, bombarded just as we are yeah um and but they're being brought up even more so than we were in the culture of distraction yeah so uh, when they're young have you thought of strategies for um for, for the people who have young children like you know like your children like my children for cultivating an environment that even for young children can be contemplative like how do you how do you be, start that early i I think it's it's easiest when they're young because you can just restrict their screen time to to I would say you know something under an hour, mm -hmm. and then they are going to have to entertain themselves, and kids will yeah. naturally do that. After. I mean, so the biggest thing is just putting up with um, hearing them whine about being bored, <laughs> and um, so we do that almost daily. It feels like and 
and you just tell yeah. them to go find something because they're spoiled and they have a bunch of amazing things in the world. There's amazing places that got created. So suck it yeah. up and go find something interesting to do. And they do. And it's yeah. wonderful. Weird. And so, yeah. And that's what I did. And that's what we've all done for thousands of years. So, um, so the, it's the teenagers that I don't know. And not having a, a teenager yet myself, I don't know. Um, because I, I'm much more scared about the, um, the peer pressure teenagers have with technology today. Um, and, and I also recognize that, man, when my daughter is a teenager, if she's driving, for example, I really want her to have a smartphone. I would like her to have an, you know, an iPhone so that I could actually know where she's at just by looking at, you know, her on the, you know, find my location or whatever app. So yeah, yeah. that exchange of, you know, of the benefits and some very steep costs. Yeah. Um, y- you know, that's scary. So I've been thinking about it in sort of in these terms, because it feels like on the one hand, there's, there's sort of like the specific things we don't want them to get into. Like, yeah, I want to protect my kids from, I don't know, running across things online that they shouldn't see purposefully or accidentally, right. As they get older. Um, I want to protect them from people who are, you know, up to things online that the, you know, that they're nefarious. Um, Mm -hmm. And I want them to make good choices about, the kind of media they consume and how much time they spend on it and things like that. And probably they should make, I would hope they would make better choices than I would on that. Um, but <laughs> there's also something like it's, it goes beyond sort of like the specific things I don't want them to do or that I do want them to do. And if there's something like we, we've, you know, you, you talk in the book about environment, we've used the word several times, but like, it seems like there's gotta be, something inherent to the environments that we're cultivating that goes beyond like specific rules or a checklist of things that you can look at and that you can't look at and that you can watch and you can't watch like something it's like it's like the idea we talk about this with education around here a lot like a christian education can't an education that is christian is not just about the checklist of things you teach or don't teach it's about mm-hmm. the way you teach like mm-hmm. it's, it's about the you know, it goes deeper into what pedagogy means. And there's got to be sort of crucial realities and truths within the environment and the modes of teaching that you're, that, you know, by which you're presenting information and lessons to your students and things like that. And the same thing seems true in our homes and in our schools within the, this con, within the context of this discussion. Like, so I'm wrestling with when my kids are young before they're being faced with temptations and choices and things like that. Mm-hmm how do I, besides just a lot of prayer, how do I cultivate the right kind of environment so that they can, so that I don't have to teach them to be afraid of the culture. You know, like, right. like, like the, you were mentioning the environment that you grew up in. Yeah. I, I want them to be able to participate and I want them to be able to do so wisely and judiciously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want them to not have to be afraid of it. But in order for that to happen... You know, I don't want to be able to just give them... I know I'm going to have to give them some rules, right? And some list of do's and don'ts. But I want them yeah. to be able to go beyond that because they've been raised in an environment and in a context where they've practiced participation in the right way. And that's right. the thing that I think in some ways gives me anxiety as a parent and as a teacher. Whether I'm responsible... It's my kids that I'm responsible for or it's someone else's kids in the classroom. You know, I want to have a, cult- I want to have a classroom that cultivates that as well. Mm-hmm. So after all that rambling, now my question is help. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> question so mark. I would say, I mean, I think, I think when we traditionally turn, think in terms of, of culture and participating in it, we tend to think in terms of, of content, right? So, you know, right, media, right. Right, right. Media consumption. Right. I think that's, that, that doesn't worry me so much. I think if you, um, stock your house with books that are good quality that if you show them good movies and you talk to them about them, if you expose them to good music and you talk about it and you do it in an age appropriate manner, I think they're going to be okay. What, what I think is more, uh, insidious, sneaky and dangerous Mm -hmm. is, 
the, the, is, is things like social media. So that's what really worries me is, is these kids who grow up and they're maybe really good about discerning content, but then when they're old enough and they get in and they engage in social media, which happens to be at that same time when they are trying to figure out who they are. And now they have this platform that tells them basically, um, you need to project yourself to the world. This is how adults do things. Um, and that to me is the more worrying thing. And I would say that the way to address that is to help your kids, first of all, know that their identity is hidden in Christ, that they are, that they are loved. Um, and just emphasizing and, and trying to encourage them to understand that their life is not about creating an identity um, because that's what social media tries to convince us of. And, um, and so I guess acts of service, things that are pointing outside of us, those are the things that are going to probably help us move away from thinking in terms of I- identity. But it's a huge, that's the swimming upstream that worries me because that, that idea that our lives are about, creating and expressing an identity is the overwhelming philosophy of our time and social media feeds it. Yeah. Do you think social media is the one of the reasons why it's such a huge part of our lives right now? Or do you think it was already such a huge part of our lives in Facebook and social media, Facebook, Twitter, all that became popular because of that? Like, which is this a chicken yeah. situation? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was definitely, yeah, it was definitely popular before, but before this, um, maybe not quite so be maybe the average person couldn't express their participation in that quite so freely. Sure. I mean, so when I think about myself growing up as a, as a teenager before, and there was no social media, I certainly was obsessed with my identity and trying to think, okay, what kind of a person am I, am I going to be? What am I going to, how am I going to dress? How am I going to, you know, how, how am I going to make myself unique and, and important and valuable? Um, I think that's just kind of a, it's a very common experience in in the modern world. Um, and social media absolutely, you know, profits off of that and, um, formalizes it. Right. So you can, you can say, you know, and that's, what's so terrifying is like, you can just all those desires I had and those obsessions I had, well, now you can fill out a form that says, well, these are my interests (laughs) Yeah, yeah. and here's the best photo of me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, yeah. in just this blatant way, I tell my students that it, they the, the social media looks a lot like celebrity magazines of you know the nineteen forties or fifties, right? Yeah. Like, you know, it, this is the write up that Cary Grant would have. You know, you have a bio <laughs> or something. It's yeah. very bizarre, but to us, it's normal. Yeah, it's like the half page columns in like Rolling Stone or something where they're interviewing George Clooney and you learn like a few facts about them, or like Julia yeah. Roberts and People magazine. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Except we're all movie stars now and we're yeah. all competing to have our existence, you know, justified. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's funny you mentioned that because I remember like, you mentioned the insidious nature of social media in some ways. And I was thinking about how when I was, I don't know, so, so Facebook came about when right as I was kind of going into college, okay. it really started to, to get big. Um, I think I'm 31. So... I think it would have been what oh four somewhere in that range when it really kicked off, and you had to have the .edu email and all that kind of stuff. And I remember filling yeah. out a profile, um, and I had the I had a MySpace profile before that, of course, um, or whatever or whatever was the flavor of the the moment at the time. But I remember filling out the Facebook profile, and you chose wasn't it Facebook where originally like you choose these are the books that I like. These are the movies yeah. that I like, yeah. the music, and so you'd like you, when you'd go to someone's profile, you'd see the list of all those things. Um, I don't saw so a lot of people probably were not on Facebook back when that was the way it was. But um but I remember thinking one day, looking at my profile and being like, Yeah, I probably shouldn't claim like Dostoevsky as like one of my favorite <laughs> books yet in my life. Like I said that it was, but I think I was just kind of wanting it to be. So, and I was just going through and looking at all the movies and music. I was like, yeah, I guess I kind of listened to that to like Rachmaninoff, but really, I mean, like I, did I put uh-huh. that in there just to balance out my love of punk rock too or something? Yeah. And, and like you just sort of claim like, but 
when you can make those choices and you can just sort of claim something, it actually does sort of change you. Like maybe it sometimes does. it's aspirational. It's like my dad used to always tell me like, people would always be like, well, you're never going to read all those books. You're not gonna, you have 3000 books. You're not going to read them all. And he was always like, oh, it's okay. You know, the quality of a library says a lot about the kind of person you want to be. And I think there's yeah. something true to that. There's something aspirational about it, about sort of claiming something like that. But at the same time, you can make much more of yourself and think much more highly of yourself in the areas that you want to think highly of yourself than you prob- properly should. And you, right. it happens. Maybe you don't really mean anything by it. And then, but then all of a sudden you've, it, it, it is insidious in the way that it begins to change the way you think about yourself. So you're yes. searching for an identity and then you sort of claim it, but then you're not actually, you don't really have that identity. Like yeah. It's not really true of yourself. Yeah. And we're always hyper aware that we're expressing like that's the, that's often the primary thing that we're thinking about, you know? Um, yeah. What I, am I, I, what am I making myself look like? Right. And, and to some extent that's, important and and you know there there's a there's a good a a good quality of that too like we need Mm -hmm. to be thinking about being of good repute right so how am i presenting myself is am i presenting myself as somebody who's honest and trustworthy but that's not the kind of thing we're typically doing right so typically when we're thinking about our expression we're thinking about how am i building myself up um how am i increasing my brand Oh my, those sorts of things. Yeah. And I, I really, I I meant, I talked to my students uh, uh, a lot about romance and how I'm glad I didn't, you know, fall in love in the social media era because, um, so all the questions that you can just discover, like, so if, if I saw a girl, you know, in a homeschool group when I was getting homeschooled, I would know nothing about her, right? And so I'd go home and ask my mom, oh, well, who's that new family, right? And yeah. what's that girl's name? Right? And then I would ask my friends and then I would like find little bits and every piece of information was like discovering something interesting about this new person who's a mystery. And now- and it necessarily had to be a little awkward, which is good. Yeah, that's right. And and mostly I would have to go to the person and ask them, oh, what kind of music do you like? And like yeah, discover yeah. that. But now I could- I, if somebody sees someone they're, they're interested in, they can just, you know, discover them, get their name, find them on Facebook or on Instagram, see thousands of photos of them, videos of them, see tons of interactions. See, basically, I mean, a lot. Of yeah, it's info. pretty weird. It is very weird. <laughs> it's very weird. Um, so, but we it's don't troubling. really think about it. And of course, we don't probably need to sit on this show and like talk about the dangers of social media. I think probably almost everybody who's listening is like, <laughs> yeah, we agree. We get it, guys. We don't, we're, yeah, we're yeah. concerned too. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, so, okay. So your book is due out tomorrow. People, This is um, where we're actually recording on um, Friday, July 13th, but the, it's going to air on the 16th and it comes out on the 17th. Um, so what do you... Well, well, I'm now. I'm curious what your next book's going to be going to be about. Is it is it a follow up to this book? Uh, I mean, I mean, in a, in a sense, it, I mean, it's going to be a similar style. Okay. Yeah. So, what do you? What are your? This is kind of a boilerplate question. I apologize in advance. What are your sort of goals for this book? And I don't mean obviously. I don't mean in terms of like the success of it, but mm-hmm. what do you hope that someone who is reading Disruptive Witness um, is going to get out of it or in what ways do you hope that they'll be able to, um, in what ways do you hope it'll be meaningful for people? So, um, uh, my hopes are different. There are different levels. So uh, one, I, um, I think, you know, the first half of the books is just diagnosing the problem. And I think for individuals, that's, um, going to be a lot of the most helpful things. Uh, because just being aware of what's going on to us and around us can help us make better decisions. And so that's what I think that at the individual level, I think that's really important. And there, there are some, in the second half of the book, there's some actions that individuals can take. And I think that can be helpful too. Um, but more broadly, I, I would love to see uh, churches and then other institutions like schools um, think through these ideas and wrestle with, okay, how can we create spaces that encourage contemplation? Do we, you know, ban cell phones? You know, what do we, 
what are we doing to signal to our, you know, our students to encourage our students to, to, to live, uh, to, to be contemplative and to wrestle with and acknowledge cognitive dissonance and deal with it as opposed to just sort of move on. Mm-hmm. Um, and those big picture, uh, that's what I would like to see. I have a section in there where I talk a lot about church liturgy. I think that churches have a, a, a major role to play. And so I would love to see the church sort of move away from adopting what, you know, Jamie Smith and others would call secular liturgies and, um, and, and, and basically formation during church service that doesn't, in, uh, doesn't stress the solemnity and awesomeness of God, the transcendence of God and stre- and instead sort of entertains us and yeah. emphasizes eminence. So, um, yeah, yeah, those would be my sort of larger goals, hopes. There's a, the Eastern, a lot of the Eastern churches still use some liturgy that's from like the first century, of course. And one, uh, I think almost every Eastern church, I don't know about the Catholic churches, uh, have a, have, have a liturgical a portion of the service that begins with the line, let us attend. Mm. And I love that idea that like church calls us yeah. a contemplation to paying attention to the things that are right to pay attention to. Um, and, it, and it gives us the context, the environment to participate corporately in that contemplation, in that paying attention to the right things. Um, mm. And so that's, you know, ever since I recognized that line, heard that line, that's something that's been... Yeah, important. that's a great line. So, well, hey, thanks so much for uh, joining me for this conversation. We kind of went a little far afield, so to speak, but um, I know you've got kids that are, you know, are you, are you distracting them with something? <laughs> <laughs> they were listening to audiobooks. Okay. All but right. their mother came home, my wife okay. came home, so I don't know what they're doing now. Okay. Well, I'll let you go uh, go help out. Um, but again, thank you for joining me. I hope the I hope the book sells out. I hope it's a New York Times bestseller. I loved it. Um, I hope everyone gets a copy of it. Um, you, people can find it on Amazon, right? Amazon or IVP right. website or is there anywhere else that, that's uh, beneficial for you to for people to buy? Those are good. All right. Well, again, thanks for joining me and um, congratulations on the publication of the book and hope it all goes well. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.